0: And welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by two people who also stand about looking distinguished and as martyrs for the arts. How's it going, what? Angelina Stanford and Tim dark? McIntosh.
1: That's the best introduction I've ever gotten.
0: Well, maybe we should say that Tim stands around looking distinguished, and Angelina looks like a martyr for the arts, or maybe it's vice versa. I don't know. I think
1: no, I, I yeah, I don't, I don't know which of us gets which. But...
0: <laughs> Holy I co- want
1: to be the and martyr. and claim it. <laughs> I want to p- be the martyr.
0: The martyr?
2: I would okay. like to be the martyr, but I would still not to, like to lose my fashion sense. <laughs> 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 that sounds like something that uh, what's-his-name
0: would say from the book. Sebastian? No.
1: Oh, no, the other one, Anthony. Oh, Anthony, <laughs> Anthony Blanche. <laughs> You're going to have to own Anthony that Blanche. statement <laughs> a little more, Tim. You're going to have to put some yeah. behind the statement if you want Anthony to sell it.
2: I would love to be a martyr.
0: So it's really <laughs> my fashion sense.
1: Oh yes, yes, that was perfect.
0: Speaking of being distinguished, as you were sitting here talking, I just like took a sip of Dr. Pepper and just spilled it all over <laughs> myself. <laughs> You're welcome very much. <laughs>
3: Keeping
1: it classy as always. Yep,
0: classy on close reads. That should be our new hashtag. We need to get t-shirts to say classy on close reads.
1: Yes, but also you can't say Dr. Pepper on the air. They're not a sponsor. You have to say generic soda. I was drinking a generic soda. Have
0: have you guys ever seen that um, comedian that went on like Conan or something, the British guy? And he goes on there and he's like, I love Dr. Pepper. I drink it every night. I have no idea what it is. I mean, it is definitely not... Natural flavor, whatever they say. I've never eaten a bite of fruit and been like, "That tastes like Dr. Pepper." <laughs> 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 but he's so true. I don't know it's what Dr.
1: Pepper with is. Prune juice. It's sweetened with prunes. That's prune what juice. I've heard. I've heard it's prune
0: juice.
2: That's, That's
1: what I've of heard
0: too. Agent. Huh, well. Of course, learn
2: something tim and new on close reads the
1: person who's like you know tut tutting that comedian i dare say good man it's actually proved it, it
0: actually is natural <laughs> he actually he also goes on and talks about um uh oh, what is it? apricots apricots whatever and uh, okay there's another one for you do you say apricots or apricots
1: i say apricots
0: what tim what do you say all right apricots. all right well you're about voted on this as far as people on the you show say now.
2: apricots david
0: I, yeah i just did <laughs> Well, you said both. You said
2: apricots or apricots. Yeah, but my, at least I, at least I said apricots,
0: enough. and then I was like, I don't know what it is.
1: Tim doesn't even. I get talk a professionally.
0: Got no idea.
1: State. State. You're from the Peach State. You know nothing about apricots. He probably I, calls I, peaches um, peaches for peaches. Okay,
0: Angelina,
2: it's actually the peach State. <laughs> the, the peak See, State.
1: I defer to you on issues all things related to peaches. I will, <laughs> without question.
0: Although you, you know. Say,
2: Walnut or Walnut? (laughs) Now we're being absurd. Pecan Pecan or pecan?
1: pecan. (laughs) I will cut a person who says pecan. I'm putting it right here on the air.
2: Speaking of... I will cut a person. Sorry, David. (laughs) I, I will cut a person for mispronouncing the name of a nut that i adore
0: I, she probably uh, hates yeah. them she probably just can't even stand no, pecans I grew up
1: with those trees in my yard that's like a lifelong ritual of going out and picking pecans and pecan season and yeah.
0: tim do you say pecan pecan i say pecan pecan yeah
1: oh thank goodness we can yeah. have peace now
0: yes <laughs> they taunt <laughs>
1: Otherwise, I was bringing my knife to Austin.
2: <laughs> You're going to have an x knife in your purse. And right when I least expect, expected it. We're going to
0: need a freaking metal detector.
1: <laughs> yeah, don't stay, Yeah, Hamlet, don't stand behind any curtains. I might just start stabbing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I How mean, did Tim
2: get turned into ribbons?
0: Angelina, you do strike me as someone who, if you were a little suspicious of what was behind a curtain, you might just start stabbing anyway, so... <laughs> Um,
1: I feel like that's a very good go-to first response.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Hey, Tim, I I learned something new about peaches, and this is going to ruffle some peach state feathers. Did you know that in the last couple of years, South Carolina and Massachusetts are beginning to rival peach production of Georgia?
2: David, I thought that South Carolina had already passed us in peach production. That may well, be that the case. Would Massachusetts, why though.
1: That giant peach water tower in South Carolina. I didn't know what that was about when yeah, I passed. Yeah, the peach it. butt.
0: We. Yeah. <laughs> we to people who live in South Carolina are, are going to get it. Side. Yeah. No, if you live, if you don't live around here, you've never seen the South Carolina peach water tower. Just Google it, and you'll get why people. I peop- have seen yeah, it yeah, now. Yep. It's
1: quite a shock. I thought I was in Georgia.
0: Yep. It's in the. It's in. uh, It's just over the border, or not too far from the North Carolina border. I can't remember which town it's in, but but yeah. So I
2: think whenever I see that thing, I don't know whether to react as if it's a behemoth or if it's kind of a work of art made from an industrial. uh, What would you call it? Well, hold on. What's the difference between
0: these two things?
1: No, I hear what you're saying, Tim. Because I have this weird fascination with. uh, American kind of, you know... Oh, I'm drawing a blank with what the
3: word Ingenuity? Was.
1: No, but you know, there's a certain... T- uh, I cannot believe. I had the word on the tip of, t- tip of my tongue, but now I've Is lost it, it. But An
2: attempt to kind of like make art out of industrial grotesques?
0: Nope.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so a word it's going to come to me after this show. This is yeah, it'll very annoying. Or it come to you in the
0: middle of a different conversation.
1: Of course. Before oh. we switch over to the story, though, the the book, I, I got. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a Tim moment, and I'm gonna tell a, a story that's not related to this conversation, but is related to this conversation. <laughs> because I thought about it when we were joking about things dated behind curtains and being all Hamlet like. Uh, I just feel like these are the kinds of things that happen when you live in a literary family. So my daughter, who's eighteen. Bought a basil plant and put it on her windowsill, with the window open, and then and then forgot that the plant was there. and was behind a curtain. She named this basil plant Polonius,
3: and <laughs> oh then forgot God. it
1: was there. And she hit the curtain, and it fell out of the window. And oh it, and my I, goodness,
2: that is <laughs> so!
1: I could not stop laughing about that. Like you killed Polonius. Names. It was
0: <laughs> Names matter, people.
1: See they do matter. matter. That pork plant never had a chance. You cannot put a plant named Polonius on a windowsill. That's just some good life advice for you folks. I so
2: learned you know, this. I'm, I'm kind of I, I think that um it sounds like the basil plant might have died from neglect if she had not like kind of capsized it out the window. <laughs> that was courteous of her. Because I think everyone would rather die by being pushed out a window than by just neglect.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this also goes to the importance of reading Shakespeare to your children, and you think they don't understand it. Because I cried, I laughed so hard. And she said, "I don't get it." I said, "But it's named Felonious. And She's like, "But I don't get it." I said, "From Hamlet." She said, "Wait, I totally didn't do that on purpose."
2: <laughs> she didn't do it, she on, didn't purpose? Do it on purpose.
1: It it's a Bella so you just, you're just just like I'm going to name this basil plant let me think of a name and you came up with Polonius and you didn't remember it was in Hamlet it's like I swear I did not it wasn't on purpose so the fact that it was accidental is even
2: better <laughs> My poor kids this is a like, sign Names matter, man. Bella, this is a sign that Bella is operating at this like highly intuitive artistic level of genius right that's the no, only explanation totally. she named it Polonius f- not knowing what it was that's what that's what it is. She was operating at a super intuitive level, brilliant.
0: But the problem she is, she she cursed the plant by naming it that.
1: <laughs> she does obviously have some kind of deep, deep connection to Hamlet that she doesn't know. Because another time we were shopping at Halloween and there were all these skulls, and she picked one up and she struck this perfect Hamlet pose and she raised up the skull with one hand and said some Shakespeare quote.
2: <laughs> oh no! That's so great. That's so funny. She didn't say the last poor York. She said some Shakespeare quote. (laughs) I love it.
1: This is how my children cope with having a literary mother.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, this is the thing. The names do matter. And I learned this after we named our first child because we named him Coulter. C O U L T E R. If you, you know, just like just after the Wendell Berry character, after the whole Coulter family, right? And the thing is, that name really comes from the word like that means young horse and it has turned out to be exactly true that he is you know he, we did we doomed him to become a young wild horse <laughs> and we have we are we are reaping what we sowed <laughs> really really um he i'm just he kicks a lot there's a lot of kicking and bucking yeah
1: so your other oh, okay. son is just going to be standing on the street corner predicting doom for civilization?
0: <laughs> Definitely. No, we said this last night that Jeremiah is exactly what someone who named Jeremiah should be like. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Um, he's maybe a little more stylish than the, but the prophet, though. Um, anyway, we are here... <laughs> yeah. We are here to talk about Brad's Head Revisited, Part 2, Chapter 1, or Part 3, Chapter 1, depending on which edition you have. But of course, before we do that, we do need to say a quick word from our friends over at the Scholé Academy, uh, which is from Classical Academic Press. Uh, if you have a 9th or a 12th grade student that would benefit from an engaging seminar-style grade books course while earning two high school credits, then the class with, through Schole that our very own Tim McIntosh is offering uh, might be just the perfect fit for you. In fact, Tim, you're offering four classes for four high schoolers. classes, David. Could you tell us what, what the topics of those four classes are going to be? David, I'd be happy to. I thought you might. Ancient, ancient
2: Greek and Roman Literature and History. That's the first class. Second class is Medieval and Renaissance History and Literature. British and American History and Literature and World History and Literature. And all of it is available. I think I'm st- like the, the, on the front page of Scolacademy.com. And SCOLA is S C H O L E, Scolayacademy.com.
0: And if you have heard us do these ad reads for the last two months and have not signed up your child for one of these courses, then I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Couldn't possibly be our. Terrible advertising skills.
0: Yeah, I couldn't possibly be. I mean, Tim's enthusiasm about the courses. Tim, you're enthusiastic about these courses, right? Oh, I I seriously can't wait for yeah, to start. I, I mean,
2: that's it, not a joke.
0: Yeah, well, I didn't expect. I didn't think it was a joke. I didn't really think of you as someone who has a sense of humor. So, um. <laughs> I had it surgically removed. <laughs> that's that sounds painful. Um, but anyway, so speaking of. People who sense it
1: of removed humor. When you got the Hamlet role. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hamlet's
2: hilarious. No, I could never have gotten a remove for the Hamlet role. Hamlet's hilarious.
1: I'm just teasing you. All right, well, David's definitely speaking, trying to get this back on track. Speaking from of today. people who
0: don't often display a sense of humor, we should probably talk about Charles Ryder and company.
1: Nice. Um,
2: we got a Lear. We had a couple of Lear references. Ooh, in, sure, this
0: in, did. Indeed, we did. So we're here. This is this is um this is. As I said, chapter one of part two, if you're reading the original version, and I believe that in the new the new American Standard version, it's uh, <laughs> chapter one of part three, and I, I don't have that in front of me, but I think that's what it is. I,
1: I feel like on the Facebook page, we started a bit of a like King James Version-only kind of controversy <laughs> with regards to these editions. Oh, really? Which really? one's authoritative? Which one's definitive?
0: It is... I don't... That, who cares? Um... <laughs> So, so, um, in this chapter, we, we venture across the ocean and there is a storm of many in many different sorts of ways. So let's talk about that. Those storms and, and, and the journey. Um, I, I, what I'm thinking I want to do after this is for the next episode, let's do the next two chapters cause they're relatively short and then okay. that would give us a chance to do our live recording. Um, of the last two chapters of the book. So when we're actually all oh, together at idea. the show, we can finish our discussion of Brad's Head, um when we're at the conference. And then when we get back, we can do the Q&A episode. So that's a great idea. For the episode that's going to record this Friday and then run a week from... T- well, we're recording on a Monday. We're recording late. So today's July 10th. So the episode, for those of you who are listening, that's going to air July 17th, we will do chapters two and three of part two, and then we'll finish the book on the episode that's going to air on the 24th or so. And that will be the one that we recorded live on Thursday evening at the conference. So does that, does that work for the two of you? I love that idea. I think so. Okay.
2: I uh, do want to know, David, how are we going to be sitting? I mean, I'm going to be a little bit wigged out to not just be sitting by myself
0: with my laptop.
2: I know oh, you're gonna have oh, no. to have
1: pants on, I, and not just your robe. I, <laughs> right,
0: right, I right. assumed that you would be in the another room in the hotel, and Angelina and my dad and I will be on the stage at a table, and you would still get to have your own room.
2: That sounds great.
0: <laughs> no, we'll get
2: I a table.
1: Have people like interrupting you, like the students in the hall at Gutenberg, just so you feel normal.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds great.
1: And we can have my daughter knocking on the door, motioning me, hurry up, in this, so that I can feel like I'm at home.
0: Yeah, yeah. We w- yeah exactly. We will. We'll sit at a table. I, that's a great question. I don't know. We'll have to have him just sitting in the audience sending us text messages. Yeah, probably so.
1: No, no. He's just going to run up and interrupt it or cover his ears and cry like he's bleeding from the sound of my voice or something.
0: Maybe he'll be
2: in Dallas and he'll be talking yeah, about
0: exactly hearing Angelina. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's talk of these chapters. we've I mean, we've got that business out of the way, and whatever else nonsense we've been talking about. Um, it, it, the chapter begins with a really interesting, sort of almost I don't know what the word is for I'm trying to think of the word, but it's like a interstitial almost before he gets into it, and he has this sort of mm. thing about like memory and stuff like that. He says, in fact, my theme is memory, that winged host sort of about me one gray morning of wartime. Um, and this, it gives it this, I felt this um sort of ancient epic yeah. poem vibe going on here, right? Yeah. The way, it's almost oh, yeah, like,
1: very lyrical.
0: Uh, yeah, and there's something about there's like a muse, right? Yeah. It's almost like he's he's not directly calling. It. It's like it's like a 20th century version of calling out to the muses or referencing the muses or something like the beginning of the Iliad and the Aeneid or whatever.
2: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: And then he gives us this interstitial, uh, well, what I'm calling it interstitial, because it obviously does lead into the. Um, it's not set apart. It's still part of the chapter, but he he gives us this sort of description of how how he sees memory. And I thought we should go ahead and sh- and start by reading that paragraph. Mm. So Tim. If you could do it, give us your best child's writer and read. Um, first the two first, paragraphs in 225? Yeah, let's go with the first two paragraphs and then the one that, the, the last one too, that bridges over to 226.
2: Okay. My theme is memory, that winged host that soared about me one gray morning of wartime. These mornings, which are my life, for we possess nothing certain except the past, were always with me. Like the pigeons of St. Mark's, they were everywhere under my feet, singly, singly, in pairs, in a little honey-voiced congregation's nodding, strutting, winking, rolling the tender feathers of their necks, perching sometimes, if I stood still on my shoulder or pecking a broken biscuit from between my lips, until suddenly the noon gun boomed and in a moment, with a flutter and sweep of wings, the pavement was bare and the whole sky was dark with a tumult of fowl. Thus, it was that morning. And then skipping a paragraph. The human soul enjoys these rare classical Actually, periods. don't skip
0: it. Read that. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. I, I confused you.
2: These memories are the memorials and pledges of the vital hours of a lifetime. These hours of a flatus in the human spirit, the springs of art are, in their mystery akin to the epochs of history when a race for centuries has lived content unknown behind its own frontiers digging eating sleeping begetting doing what was requisite for survival and nothing else will for a generation or two stupefy the world commit all manner of crimes perhaps follow the wildest shimeras is that shimmeras, you guys i always yeah i think so
1: yeah i think that's how it's pronounced
2: Follow the wildest chimeras go down in the end in agony, but leave behind a record of new heights scaled and new rewards won for all mankind. The vision fades, the soul sickens, and the routine of survival starts again. Keep going, David. Yeah, yeah. The human soul enjoys these rare classic periods, but apart from them, we are seldom single or unique. We keep company in this world with a horde of abstractions and reflections and counterfeits of ourselves, the sensual man, the economic man, the man of reason, the beast, the machine and the sleepwalker, and heaven knows what's besides, all in our own eye, indistinguishable from ourselves to the outward eye. We get born along, out of sight in the press, unresisting, till we get the chance to drop behind unnoticed or to dodge down a side street pause breathe freely and take our bearings or to push ahead outdistance our shadows lead them a dance so that when at length they catch up to us they look at one they look at one another askance knowing we have a secret we shall never share
0: and then he he launches into some a reflection on sort of a, the last ten years of his life before the sort of primary drama of the chapter. <clears throat> These memories are the memorials and pledges of the vital hours of a lifetime. And and by the way, the, a flatus—that word—that I don't know if that's exactly how you pronounce it or whatever, but it means essentially the a divine creative impulse or inspiration. Huh. So oh, the hours he brings of,
1: that up again later in the chapter, yeah, right? That he, yeah, didn't, he he lost his inspiration when he left Bride's Head.
0: Yep, he does like on two twenty-seven. Um, so basically, you could read as these hours of divine inspiration in the human spirit, the springs of art are akin to the epochs of history. Um, and then he goes on and on. That what the, what do you guys what is the place of this passage here? Like, why does I, I'm really interested in the, in the why in the decisions that wa makes in the midst of the narrative where he drops these passages that are highly philosophical very lyrical in a sense um Mm -hmm. classical in a way um like very very formal and kind of formalistic even um why does he do that and what effect does that have on this chapter and one of the things i was thinking about is how in some ways this is a book in which very little real action happens right and much of it happens yeah. off screen But this is, so to speak But this is the chapter where something actually happens Which is really interesting Um, and And it happens much later And kind of, as a it's almost like we have a new narrative Going on now Um, Sebastian's completely gone Um, yep. so, so what is the, what is the Lady Marchmate too Yeah, she's gone, yep, yep Um And when it starts, Julia's not there either You know, we get this new wife character uh, Celia, but what what is the place of this passage here? Um, would would you say? What's the purpose of it?
1: Well, my first thought was that he was reminding us again that this story is being told um, in retrospect, right? And he just, I'm just, I'm so fascinated with this book structurally. Now we get the story of the story he told us a few chapters earlier, right? About right about. Rex and and Julia, nothing is unfolding chronologically, which, of course, is very true to how memory works. Memory is very episodic. Something happens, there's a smell or a sound, and, you know, you remember bits and pieces. Um, But I like your idea that it's the muse. I hadn't thought about that, but that certainly fits in with the theme of the divine inspiration that goes through the beginning of the chapter when he's talking about what's missing in his art. Yeah. Um, Especially because the muses are the daughter of memory. I'm going to be talking about that. Mm. In, oh, it's yeah. one of the One of the things that I'm going to be bringing up the idea that all stories is mm. are memories. At least mm. that's the classical and medieval idea, right? That not that I have invented this story, but that I am passing down to you a memory of something. That was the role of stories. That culturally we have to we have to remember things. Remember when we talked about Jaber Crow? How often Wendell Berry said the rememberers are lost, mm. um, you know, and that's all connected to the stories.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that sometimes you don't know where, like, something, you never know why your memories are going to get brought up. And you didn't put it that way, but you said something to that effect, I think. And Mm -hmm. isn't that sort of how it happened at the beginning of the book, right? Like, he's in the army, and he doesn't even even realize where he is. But then something kind of jars his memory, and out of nowhere come these reflections. And, and like, it doesn't always, it's not going to happen in this, like, perfect narrative arc, the way we remember things.
1: Right. And it came out as an emotion first. He cried. Hmm. And then hmm. then he remembered. So, like, something deep in him remembered and responded with tears before he yeah. was able to even put the thoughts to it, which is also very, very true. Another motif that has run through is how many times has he said, I never expected to see them again, never expected to go back to Bride's Head again? You know, over and over. And this is so true to life, too, right? We think an episode is over. These people are not in our lives. This this is done. And then they come they come back again.
3: Hmm.
1: Over and over.
2: That's The third paragraph, these memories are memorials and pledges of the vital hours of a lifetime. These hours of a flautus in the human spirit, the springs of art, are in their mystery, akin to the epochs of history when a race which for centuries has lived content unknown behind its own frontiers, digging, eating, sleeping, beginning, doing what was requisite for survival and nothing else. That That is that's Charles before he met Sebastian and it's Charles Mm -hmm. after he leaves Brideshead. I mean, he, we kind of find out in this chapter, nothing has happened in his life. Well, except he got married, but he doesn't care about this. Um, except that he's become a pretty decorated artist, but he doesn't seem to care about this either. He keeps going back to those moments that, for him, we're kind of like stepping outside of the kind of like safe borders of himself.
1: In fact uh the way that those were introduced into the narrative was very interesting right because we think of that as the milestones of a person's life and this is yeah. the story of charles's life but and just like we saw that with lady marchmain's death all the things that should be these significant milestones are they just their afterthoughts oh and of course my wife was there and and you're like when did, when did this happen and what are the circumstances of that and oh you have two children uh, and and you've you know again professionally and personally all the things that you think of as a as a milestone are just not the focus here yeah. at all they're very much afterthoughts I also just want to point out that what you just read is basically a, a huge epic simile that whole paragraph is one big yeah. epic simile yeah
2: w- say more about that Angelina I don't know that I follow you it's an epic simile
1: right I mean. A memory is like a civilization that... And then he goes and he just talks and talks about the epochs of history and the way civilizations rise and fall in mankind, and that's what a memory is like.
0: And, of course, epic similes, going back to the idea of it being classical and kind of formal. Yes. The epic simile being something that is representative of Mm. Homer. That is
1: not something you see in modern literature, right? It's all these short sentences.
2: Yes. Um, And it's funny that he... Sorry, now I'm going to nerd out on the construction of the second sentence of the third paragraph.
3: Go for so it. So hold on,
2: hold on, hold
0: on. You're yeah. going to do a close read.
2: No, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do a close read. We're going micro- to hold the there.
0: phone, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm going to read it amb- one more time because it's Tim so. McAdosh, use it up.
0: Car- carry it's on.
2: So These hours of a flawless We got to figure out before the end of the show how to pronounce that. I'm
0: going to look it up right now.
2: Yeah, I okay.
1: was about to do it.
2: These hours of a flautus in the human spirit, the springs of art are, oh, darn, never mind. My whole theory was kind of just shot down by that one single being verb are. I was about to say he holds off the entire, he holds off the primary verb of the sentence until the second to last word. Stu- or third to last word, stupefy the world, stupefy. Yeah, so
1: he says, are akin, which is saying, yeah. are like. So that's the epic simile. This yeah, yeah, is yeah. like that. But he kind of hides it a little bit. That's, that's, you know, you you know way more about modern literature than I do, but in my experience, you don't run across long sentences. like I mean, in a stream of consciousness kind of way you do, but not... Faulkner not and so this, forth. Yeah, yeah. Or, or even um, James Joyce. Yeah. But when not... He-
2: We've talked about this before, I think. Shakespeare does that. He, it, it's not always an epic simile, but Shakespeare will reserve, he will hold off the verb until almost the very end of a long description. So that, It's you know, like Latin. On, yeah, right. And he was trained in Latin. It would make sense of that kind of
1: construction. And why is he doing that, do you think? Is it just a I, matter of form, or what else is going on there?
2: I think he typically does it when he is describing an event that has happened. So it's kind of similar to what wall is doing when he's describing an event that has happened. And it's basically, it's basically explication, but by reserving the verb, by holding the verb off until the very end, it creates a sense of drama to the listener or to the reader. like, I almost want to look up the opening monologue from the king in Hamlet from Claudius, because one of his opening monologues, when he's describing what has happened between he and his former sister-in-law and now wife, his relationship to Hamlet, it's this long, absolutely gorgeous monologue, but it's just all description of what's happened in the past. But the verb is buried at the very, very end. And as a listener, you're waiting for that verb you kind of need that verb to show up and so you kind of lean forward into what was otherwise kind of boring explication or it could be boring explication i think it just creates a sense of kind of like tension and drama Hmm.
0: hey hey tim since you finished that sentence there i just want to do a quick plug Graham reminded me we should do a quick plug for another of your classes Oh, what's that? Yeah, it's uh this is Tim McIntosh's sweating through the classics course. Oh. The, this <laughs> it, the intensive includes anaerobic aerobics, spinning with oh, Sophocles oh, yeah. and Cicero cardio. Uh he did want me to make sure that you know, this is not fine print but he it's a BYO towel. Um, you know, basically, you know, because Tim has to hoard all all the towels there. Right. You know. De- right. For
2: obvious, well, for obvious of reasons, the problem because yeah. of the
0: sweat gland problem yeah. that is me.
1: There right. are actual tears in my eyes he, right now, t-
0: and I just want <laughs> Graham says Graham just the re- little you know little administrative reminder. He wants people to know that payments for the class can be made out to him, and that he will make sure that Tim gets <laughs> all the checks. So. Um, <laughs> So again, that's Tim that
1: Cicero that's cardio. S-
0: Sweating Through the Classics Sweat with Tim classics. McIntosh. Yep. It includes Aeneid Aerobics, Spinning with Sophocles, and Cicero Cardio.
2: I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Sign d- up now yeah. and say.
0: Yeah. I wasn't sure if you remembered that you were doing that, but he he was right in making sure that we reminded you of that. Good for him. Yeah. He's Thanks very on top of things like that, especially in the middle of Close Reads. Yeah. Um, <sighs>
1: This is what happens when he's unsupervised from you for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm not sure he's going to appreciate the way you said that. Um, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about Charles uh, life post bride's head. Um, after he kind of leaves and thinks the inspiration is gone. He he goes on his adventures. He gets married. Um, he has children, one of which he's never met. Um, and he goes off on his his artistic adventures, which in some ways his wife oh, man. seems to support. While
1: you're talking, is this like a reverse Odyssey?
0: <laughs> well, you know, Ew. that's a great question because I was going to say there's. It feels like a reversal of so many different things, and yet at the same time, it feels like bad habits being played back again. Like it seems like a reversal of some of the expectations we would have in terms of the form of a lot of stories, like the Odyssey. And on the other on the other hand, it feels like he's pursuing. Um bad habits like the like he's just kind of reliving the things that his dad did to him in a sense.
2: That's it, man. I that thought crossed my mind also. I was like, boy, he's just he's his dad. What his dad was to him, he's being that to his wife and kids. I mean he hasn't Mm -hmm. seen
0: his you know, John John, his son John John for two years or something, and he's never met his, his little girl. Um Which is
1: named after him significantly.
0: Indeed. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I think that because we're reading in the story, it's easy to kind of gloss over, over that. But that's a, that's such a, there's, if you really stop and think about what that would mean for everybody involved and what it would take of a person to, to behave in that way it changes the way you think about the pathos of the story and the character in a lot of ways. I think like it's the first time for me anyway, where Charles loses a sense of sympathy or like you really judge him for his behavior.
1: This is why this was so interesting to me. Wall withheld the information about his wife's infidelity.
2: Oh
3: yeah. Yep. That was a little bit of genius. Right. So, so,
1: well, so, what could have been a very sympathetic portrayal of his leaving of home and his, you know, meeting up with Julia and starting something there. You know, he could have told that very differently. Instead, he yeah. would that information. So we are judging him. We are thinking all kinds of things. We might even be thinking, poor Celia, faithful mm-hmm. Penelope waiting for her man to come home. And mm-hmm. then you find out, boom, she's not faithful Penelope. Yeah. That, I just kept thinking, I can't believe you saved that. You saved that final piece of information,
0: and it's so one of the things that I loved about that is that, you get this line from Celia. I've been trying to find it, David. Yep. I'm sure we're
2: talking about the <laughs> same line.
0: So she's been sick, right? And it's towards the end of the chapter. She's been sick and it's after he's been spending time with Julia and he's now back in in his room in his quarters. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she's been sick. She's been, you know, uh, just in bed. And at one point she says to you know, he's like, "How are you doing?" and all that and she says, "Oh, I've been a terrible wife to you or something i've been a bad wife to you and really she's just saying oh i've been laid up in bed but then that's got that double meaning this whole chapter has so many different yes, double meanings yes, like that
1: yes yes i
0: can't i can't find well, it
1: even calling into question whether or not caroline is his child
0: right yeah where is that though
1: because there's that line where he's like i seem to recall something vaguely in a letter from her that she was with the child right before I left. I mean, it's just that's just it's suspicious, right? That she has a baby yeah. while he's gone for two years.
3: Right,
0: right. Yeah.
1: And then she goes out of her way to name it after him. Name her the child after him.
0: Mm. Yeah, almost as if like a it's a way of saying sorry, yeah. or, or or at least it's, making it appear that
1: making you know, it like this is definitely your child. Definitely yours, named yeah. after you. Yeah. And did you
2: did you guys take? So we're trying to kind of like tease out the how these memories fit together for Charles. I, I got a little glimpse that his wife had had an affair. Cause there's one line where they, yeah,
1: right. Where he's like, touch oh, on it, but don't like say everything it. from last time.
2: Yes. Last time. That? Last yeah. time or something That's like what
1: that. I thought too. I thought, Oh no, there's been something, something happened.
2: Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, did the affair prompt him to leave for such a long time? And, grow disinterested. I think that you can really read it that way.
1: Exactly. You could also read it the
2: other way. Like, could, he's disinterested and... But
1: it's the way she says, he says everything from last time, and she's like, oh, that's that That doesn't mean anything. It never meant anything. It's all over now. You know? Yeah. So there was definitely, you know, yeah, there was an affair. And before he left, he, he, he knew about it, which, you know, I don't get the feeling that he was ever, Mr. Really into this marriage for anything other than pragmatic reasons.
0: Right. Well, she asks him and he's, you know, he says physical yeah. attraction is part of it.
1: And then so, yeah, his wife also asked him to get married. I mean, she was the one <laughs> that's pretty telling as well.
0: Yeah. Turn to page two thirty one because there's a lot about their relationship you can tell from one conversation. And that's like, that's the thing about Wah or just any great writer, but Wah in particular, uh, the way he can reveal so much about a few, about two characters in a few lines of dialogue. And mm. at the, and just end about a relationship. Um it seems like an obvious thing to say, but it's so hard to execute. Um yeah. it's where it says we lay in our twin beds. Um I'll be the narrator and then Tim you be Charles and Angelina you be Celia. Right. Um we lay in our twin beds, a yard or two distant, smoking. Which Here's, this is where the, I'll, sorry to pause, but I, Tim, this goes back to the th- thing that you and I always talk about, right? The, the idea of like how you'd stage something or, or yes, right. I, I love the visual of it. Like you got them in their two beds and there's the distance, there's the distance between mm-hmm. them, but there's also mm-hmm. the smoke and yeah. it, like, he says smoking and like, it, might, it seems kind of like an offhand thing, but at the same time, th- the smoking and the, the smoke that's going to be in the air and, and all of the all of the moodiness that that could create and you're on a ship and all that kind of stuff. Although they might not and be on a ship yet.
1: That that little short sentence said everything I needed to know about their marriage. Mm-hmm. They've been separated for two years. Yes. <laughs> they reunite and they're sitting in their twin beds. Do you want to sleep? Nah. Okay, we'll just stay up and smoke. I know. And at and this point, they're
0: not even talking. They're just smoking. I know! The, the
3: thing,
2: I mean, this is two years having not seen each other. This is the night for... Canubial bliss. Like, know, that's makes right?
1: that reference. Yeah,
2: that, exactly. Right, yeah,
1: that older lady makes that. And reference.
2: like, like you know, in the movies, smoking after is sort of like kind of like the pattern. They just right. cut I, right I, to I, smoking.
0: Yeah, especially in the. Um, you know, you see that in like crime movies and noir movies and stuff like that. Right. Right. Well, he yeah.
1: sets it up that she starts undressing in front of him, but then the scene just does yeah. not go so where do you, you think it's going to go. Yeah.
0: Do you think that then what what he's doing there is you're from just from like in terms of how he interacts with the reader, it obviously creates all this everything we need to know about the characters and it's setting up drama. But it's also setting up something that like he sets up expectations for the reader and then it doesn't happen. And so uh-huh. then... When it happens with Julia, I mean, it's obviously all off stage. But then, when that happens with Julia, it like fulfills the expectations of the reader. So then, there's that there's that through line of drama that he sets up early in the chapter that doesn't get resolved for a long, long time. And this is a long chapter. Yeah, and
1: he doesn't tell us why there's this distance between mm -hmm. them. You know, he he waits that that's very slow in unfolding,
0: which leads you to to create your own judgments of the characters. Instead of him telling you how to feel about the characters. Because like you Mm. said, if we'd known what had happened with them previously, that she'd been unfaithful to him previously, then you'd think it'd be like, oh, that makes sense. But because he doesn't tell us that, we're left with this sense of conflict. And there's this dissonance for us as the readers.
1: Well, you really think he's kind of a jerk.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He does not come off well in this chapter. No? No, he does not. For, and for the first time, that's why I said for the first time in the book. I mean, we judge him throughout. He hasn't been a you know, a, you know, perfect specimen the whole the whole book. But we haven't looked at him as like the bad guy in a sense. Like it's either been Sebastian or somebody else that's kind of been the one who we really judge for their behavior.
2: You know, what's interesting to me about this chapter, Charles seems for the first time. That he moves out of the position of being the narrator and he moves into the position of
0: being a character. Huh. He because well, he felt that. it seems like there's he is more active. There's more action on his part.
2: Yes, yes, and I don't know why, but it, it seems like everything in the previous two sections comes through him, but he doesn't. He. I don't know, this is a hard thing that I'm trying to articulate because I'm not even really sure exactly that I agree with what I'm saying. But in the first two sections, he everything comes through Charles. In this section, he is also kind of narrating his own last 10 years. And it doesn't seem like he really narrates himself as much in the previous two sections as he does in this one
0: chapter. Hmm. I wonder if, I wonder if it's because it's, you know, you could think of it's fresher. It's, you know, it's 10 years more recent than the than the earlier stuff. The memory.
2: Well, you
1: know, but it's also yeah. interesting that we don't see a whole lot of Charles's thoughts here. He is reporting what she said and what I said, Right. Where you would expect the narrator who's about to tell you about his infidelity, you would expect him to write to be giving you justifications and excuses and trying to spin some sympathy, or at least to be like, in my head, I wondered if this was the right thing to do, but after all, she broke the marriage covenant first, like something. Hmm. But we, we don't get any of that interior life with Charles. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, we do, except at the very beginning.
1: Yes. Right.
0: Which sort of mirrors what's happening at the very beginning of the book when he's in the forest with the army and all that. Or the field mm-hmm. or whatever. Okay, well, let's finish this passage here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'll pick oh, it yeah, up. Oh, yeah,
1: that's right. Sorry, the twin beds. We got, we got off on that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I looked at my watch. It was four o'clock, but neither of us was ready to sleep. For in that city there is neurosis in the air, which the inhabitants mistake for energy.
1: I don't believe you changed at all, Charles.
0: No, I'm afraid not
1: do you want to change
2: it's the only evidence of life
1: but you might change so that you didn't love me anymore
2: there is that risk
1: charles you haven't stopped loving me
2: you said yourself i hadn't changed
1: well i'm beginning to think you have i haven't
2: no no i can see that
1: were you at all frightened at meeting me today
2: not the least
1: you didn't wonder if I should have fallen in love with someone else in the meantime
2: no have you
1: you know I haven't have you
2: no
0: I'm not in love this is
1: I know what a line
0: the whole there's so much going on in every every phrase there I mean even the idea once you read the chapter and you know more about what was going on the line where you at all frightened at meeting me today takes on mm. uh, mm-hmm. takes on new meaning you know if there's been if there was conflict and he left is he you know is he frightened at coming back is she right. has, there's the sense that she was anxious about it um you said yourself i hadn't changed or she says um she he says um she says i'm beginning to think you have i haven't and she's talking about change and he says no no i can see that and it's like he he's realizing that maybe she's not as different maybe she hadn't changed enough to where whatever she did previously wouldn't happen again or something like that.
2: And he does not answer any direct question about whether or not he has affection for her. I mean, he kind of glancingly addresses it, but so she says, um, but you might change so that you didn't love me anymore. There is that risk. Charles, have you stopped loving me? You said yourself, I hadn't changed.
1: Those are all a bunch of non-answers.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's
1: ducking. Which, if when they parted, they had had some terrible fight about her unfaithfulness, it, that's a lot more sympathetic, his non-answers.
0: Right, but yeah. when, you read it, when you read it the first time... Right,
1: the, exactly.
0: It, it just, Charles, if right nothing up. else, it's weird.
1: But is Waugh again telling us something about perspective by messing with our own perspectives? No, we think we have all the facts. We're making judgments. Then later on, we find out we we're missing a very important fact, and it changes everything. And we have everything.
2: to reevaluate. You know what I wonder, Angelina? You and I have talked about how, like, the first read of this book was not – well, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But for me, I enjoyed the book, but it didn't grab me the way it's grabbing me now. Oh,
1: that's definitely true. That's definitely true.
2: And I wonder if this is part of the reason why is because the first time you're reading it through – you kind of form these opinions and then Waugh forces you to to editorialize or he, he forces you to play the tape back and reformulate those opinions that you formed during the first read. So the second read is much, much better because you have a sense of like who the characters are and you don't have to play the tape back as it's not such a drastic reevaluation.
0: Well, a great book always uh, repays a reread, right? Yeah. It also one... might have to do with reading it and like, talking about it with people and stuff like that.
1: Well, I also think it's my age, you know? I'm, I'm reading it now closer to the age of Charles having written it. Well, I think when I read it when I was younger, uh, I still saw life as way too black and white and would not have understood the difference that time and perspectives make and... Mm. There's just, I just didn't have the maturity to grasp it, like I'm, like I am now. I feel like it's so true to life and what it's saying.
3: Hmm. Yeah.
2: Did Did you guys feel like this was the saddest chapter yet? I'll just change it. This was the saddest chapter yet for me. This was a brutally sad chapter.
1: In what way?
2: I I just feel like Charles is. He is, he has arrived in a full on depression. I mean, he kind of has all the things that he, that a person would superficially want in life, a wife, kids, a career, he's wealthy. And he is, he, it seems to me like he has nothing to live for except for painting the next architectural digest illustration.
0: There is a, there is certainly a sense of melancholy, and it, it reminds me a lot of um, Walker Percy's *The movie goer for some reason.
3: Mm.
0: There's like a, a, a malaise, uh, kind yeah. of. Yeah. And there's lots of references to like uh, um, smoke and shadows and stuff like that, which yeah. the boat mm-hmm. the boat helps with.
1: Yes, the storm, and then Julia's own sadness. Uh huh. And the the idea that that sadness contributed to her beauty which I think mm. fits thematically. I mean, it's pretty interesting, right, that the chapter that begins the section of the book called, was it a twitch in the thread? Yeah, so, mm-hmm. this is the idea that God's let him wander as far as he will, and now he's going to yank him back. So, that story begins with adultery. That's not where hmm. you would put that moment, right? That's really hmm. interesting.
3: Hmm.
1: It made me think of a quote, and huh. I cannot remember who saw it, but I saw there was a quote on Facebook, and I can't remember who said it, um, but it was something to the effect of, um, you, you have to pursue the false love so that when the false love ends, the true love can come can come in. This idea that, um, you know, false false idols have to be exposed, right, before you can see the real thing. Um, and I don't know that I'm making a very good connection here to to what's happening with with Julia, but clearly, if the if the narrative has turned and was is telling us now, this is part two. This is the story of his conversion, yeah. and it's going to start in this moment. Then there's going to be something about this relationship with Julia that's going to point him to the greater love. At least that's the way I'm reading it. I don't remember right. how the book ends, but I feel like thematically that's what he's done. Huh. Which isn't—I mean, it's not like a justification of adultery. I feel like I'm gonna get hate mail for this, but just thematically.
2: No, no, right, no, of right, yeah, just thematically. That's what, that's what you're saying. And
0: and. Okay. Yeah. Well, I de- I think yeah. When you phrase it that way, that like rediscovering Julia and entering uh-huh. into a relationship with her, at least is the, if it's not the moment when the twitch is pulled on the thread, so to speak, when the thread is twitched, then it is certainly the inciting action that that leads to that.
2: Because pull. she is not. She is not the embodiment of that kind of. Um, the catholicism the fulfillment of spiritual wanting that charles has she's not that she no. looks back at her own religious upbringing with kind of slanted eyes and yet
1: and yet she exactly. wants it for her daughter yes she's haunted that, by it right that yeah. line that I, I damnation and hell all of it i can't i can't escape it it's there and i wanted to give it to my child which is that's a fascinating thing that i have actually seen uh, in life with people, um, people who are not believers but who yet can't shake their baptism, if you know what I mean. Like, I've, And I've seen it especially with people who have come out of the Roman Catholic Church. That, um, You know, I, I've, I've met plenty of adults who are rational, modernist, materialists who will tell you the idea of the resurrection of Christ, you know, the literal resurrection of Christ is absurd, that's an absurdity, and yet at the same time will tell you, but... I can't. I can't shake it. I can't shake it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I always feel like it's your baptism. You can't shake your baptism.
3: Yeah, I've seen I mean, the there's Baptist something thinking.
1: real. Yeah, there's something real that happens when you're baptized and you're set apart, mm-hmm. right? Even if you grow up and say this is all a bunch of bunk, I want nothing to do with it. Those people still struggle because yeah. they they're marked by God. They they struggle to shake that off. Hmm. There's something that keeps calling them back. I think that's fascinating.
0: And that, of course, just from the perspective of the story. Her comments about Catholicism bring it back into focus f- for the book.
3: Yes, right.
0: And then they bring exactly. it back. You know, I imagine he hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about it. Although there is the point when he does say that what well, he he heard he heard Cordelia's line in Guatemala or something, right?
1: Right, right.
0: Quomodo sedet sola civitas? Yeah, sung by a half caste choir in Guatemala, which we talked about in a previous episode with my dad.
2: Um, I looked that up again, and apparently that's also uh, a reference to the Latin translation of the opening lines of the Book of Jeremiah. Did you guys look that up?
1: Oh no, I did not.
2: Um, trying, what page were we on, David?
0: That's on two two thirty seven. Mm
2: hmm. Yeah how doth the city sit that was full of people? It's kind of the, it's the opening stanza of Jeremiah describing kind of like, I think if I'm not mistaken, kind of the glorious, uh, wealth of Jerusalem, um, how it's teeming with life and riches and Jeremiah is about to set, set the boom down.
3: Hmm.
1: That's very interesting. You know, and I also think from a, from a metaphorical perspective, um, Charles's wife is modern. She's a modern woman. He goes, The wall goes to great lengths to give us all these details about how modern she is. Um, so that's part of the reason why he's going to be empty. Like the, it's like Julian and Rex, right? She was there to advance his career. I mean, that line that she wore, modern jewelry made at great expense to give the impression at a distance of having been mass produced.
3: Hmm.
1: What a line. Like so, everything about her is deliberate to 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 be modern and generic, which is, of course, we 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 know from earlier chapters is the opposite of what Julia is. That no matter how hard Julia tries, she can never seem mass-produced.
0: But a lot of people see Celia think think of her as she's more beautiful than Julia. Right. To like a lot of the people around. I don't exactly. know. If, I don't know if the idea is they're like an untrained eye or something. Like if that's if that's the idea that they're going for there
1: well, I, I I think part of what's going on in this chapter is Charles is seeing the essence of Julia. He talks about seeing her sadness and that that's yeah. beautiful and
0: makes it
2: makes her more beautiful.
1: I mean, that's not that's not the kind of beauty that catches people's eye at a cocktail party,
0: yeah, there's a subtlety to her beauty where Celia seems to be just more on the surface. She lacks that subtlety,
1: and like Rex, she can navigate, man, like, you know, she's she's always going to be the one in the know who's getting in the free room and the free yeah. party and this connection and that connection. like, She's a lot like Rex.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And she's cheating. She's got guys on the side like Rex had um with, with women and yeah, so
2: And what does it mean that that Waugh is setting up kind of like his two now primary characters with people that are so much of that of that modernist bent, what does it mean? For, why is Waugh doing that? What are they seeking from Rex, from Celia? That, it, why are they seeking it when they seem to be so hostile against it in some level themselves?
1: It doesn't even feel like Charles chose it as much as he fell into it.
0: Yeah. And in some that's ways... That's a good point. That's true of Julia, too, because in some ways she was desperate, you know?
1: Yes, and, right? and Being he Catholic lavished attention on her, limited her options, right, right.
0: Yeah, that's a good
2: point. They they sort of stumbled into it. Almost gravity took them into it, and to make mm-hmm. another choice would be to act against gravity.
1: Hmm. And sometimes in modernity, it just it just feels like there's no other choice to make.
2: Hmm. It's it's the water we're all swimming in. Is that what you mean, Angelina?
1: Right, right. And and when you're in it, you know, like I can well imagine Charles thinking to himself, Uh, eh, why not Celia?" Yeah,
2: yeah. You no,
1: know, what else? What else? I mean, if if I want to get married and have children, why not Celia? It's not like I'm going to hold out, and there's going to be this medieval woman that's going to show up, you know? <laughs> right.
3: right.
1: <laughs> and and Julia kind of has this "why not Rex?" Actually, yeah, she's got a right. checklist. He fits a lot of it.
2: Yeah. And she actually loves him for a little bit of time. Yeah? You know? I can imagine that, that Charles might have loved Celia for a while, just like she loved Rex, just like Julia loved Rex. I can see that,
1: too. Long. I mean, because cause someone with an artistic bent like Charles um, it is, and gosh, as I'm about to say this, is exactly like Julia and Rex. Like, there would be an attraction and a need for someone who can sort of take you under their wing and, and uh, you know, I'm going to make something of these paintings. And then they do because, the you know, the really artistic type is just going to sit in their basement painting all the time and no one's ever going to see those paintings.
3: Yes. Right. <laughs> I'm actually
1: reading a book about that kind of thing right now, and it was just talking about how that personality needs. She, she's a psychologist, and she's making the case that one is not better than the other. She's like, we desperately need each other. So otherwise, the artist type would just implode, you know. We'd be yeah. So wrapped up in our own creativity, there has to be someone else to drag that out. And so I'm not necessarily saying that's the basis of a marriage, but you can see the attraction there that, right. that, that Charles needs her.
2: Yeah. Hmm. Positive and negative charge charges attract.
1: Right. She, she's giving his life some some shape and structure, which uh-huh. he didn't have in the same uh-huh. way that Julia thinks Rex will.
0: So then what is the attraction for Julia and Charles to each other? That's a good question, and, and well, it happens—it it happens quickly too, because it's not like there was that that sort of interest no, there, was, there ten years earlier.
1: No, there was no like sexual tension between them earlier. It, it, in fact, it, it it seems so unexpected to me when Charles just decides to make his move. You know, like wait, shouldn't there be some build up to this? <laughs> need need some flirty banter or something. But um, but there seems to be a deep understanding between the two of them. A lot of unspoken things, right? Is and it so, is it yeah. lo-
0: driven by loneliness?
1: I don't think it's just loneliness because I, I I think that both of them have sort of reached the bankruptcy of their choice for spouses, right
3: mm-hmm.
1: and 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 then the exact opposite of that is is an appearance, and they're they're drawn to each other. but there's mm-hmm. also the element of the past which can't be discounted, and it's very, very strong in relationships because when when you grasp at someone from your past, I mean they represent so much more than just themselves. You know, if that is the happy memory of Charles's life, which it obviously was. He talks about that a lot, right? Yeah. I I didn't have my artist. My best art was back then when I had the inspiration. and I haven't been happy since Sebastian. And so that represents a happy time in his life. Then Julia is going to represent all of that. It's it's an attempt to, to grasp back that happiness.
2: And how interesting that all of his, that his kind of like signal moment as a budding artist is the painting of the house. Right. Of,
1: right That sets know. him on his, his life's work.
2: Right. And he's kind of in some ways, he, he's still kind of fueled by that. I mean, he's an architectural painter. and, and right. The architecture of the Marchmaid house is sort of like the signal of that which he was grasping for, and he's continuing to paint it, albeit in different forms.
1: Yes. And it's During super significant, career. though, that he's painting houses that are about to be destroyed. And yeah. his, he says my presence there was the death knoll. Now, that says something so much about where Charles is in terms of the culture, right? He's holding on to this past. He's the preserver of the past at the same time that his presence means it's dead. Yeah. He's not the person who revives the past. He just preserves it. So, yeah, the, 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 I mean, and he's deliberately unfashionable in his painting, he says.
3: Mm hmm.
2: Yeah. This book is, well, a very clever I know, man.
1: right. Like, we could talk for hours about just one paragraph. There's just yeah. so many, so, so many good things happening. Um,
2: what the? I've wondered why he is not more, why this book is not read more often. I mean, I think outside of Circe, none of my literature friends just, you know, bubble about *Brideshead Head Revisited. And I've wondered why. And I, it, my hunch is that it is such a, it is almost a book without plot. It's just relational events, which is not, which is, I mean, oftentimes the sum total of the plot of our lives is relational events, but as compared with other really fine writers, there's that sense of dramatic tension created through events of clashing. In yeah. Novels. I mean, there's, there's no, just,
0: there's, there's no river to travel down or villain to overcome yeah. or, I mean, except maybe metaphorically within each character and in their relationships, but you know, there's no actual river to go down or battle to fight or, or whatever.
2: Yeah, there's not. And it's really
0: not even the story of, like, wooing, you know? Like, it's not a roman- romantic no. story. It's not right. like Pride and Prejudice or something where it's this story of, you know, where you kind of always... You feel like one's wooing the other for, like, this long amount of time and there's this resistance and then eventually they get together. It Like, this happened and no. well, this is one chapter. It's like three paragraphs.
1: Totally yeah. anticlimactic, too. Like, he's yeah. not doing that thing that that writers do where they sort of slowly suck you into the courtship. Mm-hmm. Right, and you're rooting for this couple, and then you feel a sense of satisfaction when they finally get together, like in Pride and Prejudice. I mean, for a book that's got this many marriages and relationships happening, they're like all almost all off stage and yeah, matter of fact, and okay, okay well now now we're lovers. Yeah, just like what? <laughs> just like and and now I'm married, and now this one's dead, and it's just, although although he does uh, he does attribute a great deal more symbolic significance to his relationship with Julia than we than we've seen and. Mm-hmm. Uh, that line on, on 261.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And it seemed now, in assuaging that fierce appetite, cast a burden which I had borne all my life, toiled under, not knowing its nature. Now, while the wave still broke and thundered on the prow, the act of possession was a symbol, a rite of ancient origin and solemn meaning. Now, contrast that to Celia's comment earlier that modernity doesn't like symbols. mm
3: mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: And Charles, Charles is all about that.
3: Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah. And he, he, he even get that with when he's talking about um, the architecture earlier in the chapter where he saw people as not as interesting as the buildings. And the, the buildings yes. were almost rep- just represented the people or whatever. They were almost symbolic of, of people. They'd...
1: And how the buildings change over time mm-hmm. and become improved upon that was all very, very metaphorical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ugly parts get kind of, you know, the ugly modern parts, the additions over time, they get kind of fixed and uh, whatever problems were at the foundation at the beginning, a long time ago, they get fixed over time. And
0: I want to go back to this idea, though, of why Julie and Charles connect and connect so deeply, because um, it's not like, I mean, it's not like they just like get really drunk and have a one night stand or something oh I mean, no there's, there's some... a
1: choice going on right yeah. she says not now and then she says okay now
0: and then he says she says i don't know if i want love and he says i'm not looking for love and she says oh yes oh you are. yes you are yes you are and then there's the line where they're sitting on the deck for that whole day or whatever on 260 and she says and he says what it says once i said you're standing guard over your sadness and then she says it's all i have earned you said yesterday my wages and then he says an IOU from life a promise to pay on demand like there's, they understand each other certainly, and they see into each other. Mm. They recognize something in each other,
1: and they've apparently had days and days of conversations, which again are right. off stage. Right. We don't know them, right? But there's there's something deep going on here where they have just, you know, they're bearing <laughs> each other's souls to one another. And
0: in a sense, I appreciate that given that this is a sequence of memories, I appreciate that Wa doesn't pretend that 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 Ryder would remember everything. He gives us snippets of conversations and think about like the, those you know those important conversations or moments in our lives we don't remember every conversation over the course of three days or the, over the course of a relationship developing or blossoming or whatever but we do remember certain conversations and those right. he gives us bits and pieces here and there and he doesn't even give them us give them to us in like some sort of sequence he just us once I said and he gives us three lines of the conversation and then later on someone else will have said something so why doesn't pretend that he, that the writer remembers everything but he, he gives it to us. As someone would actually remember things if that makes sense yeah yeah
2: yeah
1: yeah, that makes sense I gotta say though that line of Julia when he says I'm not looking for love and she says oh yes you are that was like the first non-realistic thing I thought of in the book like I I just thought I'm gonna go on a limb here in the same situation I would have thought that but I would not have said it (laughs) (laughs) so I don't think she would have actually said it but for the purposes of the book it was good (laughs) Now, all the women can tell me I'm but, totally wrong.
2: That's really interesting, Angelina. I, 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 David, I kind of want to dwell on that for a second. You think yeah. that wah, You You don't think that um, Julia's character would have said that? Or you kind of think, like, I'm suspicious that any woman would say that?
1: I'm suspicious that any woman would say that.
2: Because...
1: I think sometimes in movies and stories, women are portrayed as being a lot more forthright mm. than they really are. Like, um, maybe that's not the best. Like in movies, it's a standard plot line that a less than stellar candidate approaches a girl and asks her to the prom. Right. And how does that play out in a movie? Always in some humiliating, horrible, yeah. you know, go jump in a lake. I would never give you the time of day kind of moment. But most women I know, would feel so terrible. It would feel like that was an awkward thing. Most women I know hate having to say no, hate having to turn a guy down. It's a total awkward thing and you end up so much trying not to hurt their feelings that they think you're interested and it's just way more complicated. I just don't think that interactions between men and women are, are quite that cut and dry. So yeah. Yeah. I was shocked when she was like, No, of course you're of course that's what you are. Of course of course you're looking for love. I thought, Oh wow, how did how did she know that?
0: <laughs> and she said that. <laughs> well,
1: but maybe you're right, this Dave. Moment Maybe is... she's got this special insight into him.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's because... I mean, she says earlier, she doesn't... I, okay, so what happens is I, she says earlier, I don't know if I want love or whatever. Mm. And then it's, it's like... in the
1: same conversation, yeah.
0: Uh, I think she says something about it earlier, too, doesn't she? Oh, does she? Earlier in the book. or something, Maybe it's earlier in the book, I don't know. Where I thought she said something like, she was unsure if... Eh, I can't remember. I mean I know I know that um well, I don't know uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm remembering something differently, but it, there is it, it this is a big turning point for him. like if you read between the conversations' Because she says, no Charles not yet, perhaps never, I don't know. I don't know if I want love. and then the narrator gives us well Charles gives us then something some surviving ghost from those dead ten years. For one cannot die, even for a little, without some loss, made me say, Love? I'm not asking for love. And then, oh yes, Charles, you are, she said, and putting up her hand gently stroked my cheek, then shut her door. And then you get this, and I reeled back, first on one wall, then on the other of the long, mm. softly lighted empty corridor, for the storm, it appeared, had the form of a ring. All day we'd been sailing through its still centre. Now nah, we, were, we were once more in the full fury of the wind, and that night was to be rougher than the one before. So, yeah, he's reeling because there's a storm there. Like, that's the actual narrative reason. But then that... Is representative of something yes. richer here that right, that's she, why re- bring
3: up
1: King she Lear.
0: reveals to him. Right? Yeah, yeah. We actually, we need to talk about that in a minute. She reveals to him something about himself, or confirms something that he was trying to avoid in himself. I think, like maybe yeah. he maybe he says, "I don't want love," and he's trying to convince himself that that is not true. But when she brings it to him and says, "No, that it is true that you want love," then he has to face that, and in facing that, it makes him real back. Like it's 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 traumatic in a sense. It's something you have to reckon right. with. I agree. Okay, let's talk. I also
1: Go
2: I took ahead. her line also to be sort of a um a preemptive strike of self-defense. Sure. You know, like she she had to say it to him because she knew she knew what the stakes were and she had to kind of hold him off for a second.
3: Anyway,
1: Okay, well, we can go for that, because then that would also be her way of saying, that's what I want, and if this happens, that's what it's going to be. It's going yes. to be love. Yeah. This isn't going to be a fling on a ship. Right. If this gets it... started, these are the terms. So mm-hmm. that, now that, a passive-aggressive way of introducing the terms, that makes sense to me. A woman cool. would do that. People are going to literally hunt me down and beat me in Austin for the things that I say. <laughs>
2: Why? Why? I
1: don't know. I feel hey, like if they can
2: handle your keen insights, <laughs> that's on them.
0: <laughs> hmm. This is this is interesting.
1: But because uh, she has framed the conversation in that way, when it does happen, then we we the reader think this is love. This is what well, you know. This is uh, an attempt at love.
0: Yeah, I mean that's. That's another conversation for another day.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I feel I'll put a can of worms on that one. But a in lot their of... minds, in their this is what they are grasping after.
0: Yeah. Well, it it sets uh, it takes the stakes to, to a different level. Like the, if you're yeah. if it's if you're going to enter into the relationship, then you have to make the attempt to to kind of learn to love each other or something. Um, I we could talk about your reading of that for a while. Um. And I got to think about it. I don't think I buy exactly what you guys are saying there. I mean, like maybe the preemptive, preemptive strike thing is part of it, but I think, I don't know. I think, I think she's just revealing to himself, to him,
1: Oh, I'm okay with that reading. I mean, I'm Uh, okay with books, people acting very metaphorical and, you know, her just having special insight to him and she calls it and that changes him. I just
0: just feel like that doesn't happen in real life a lot. What would a person in real life say if he says, love, I'm not asking for love?
1: Well, wouldn't she be embarrassed because she said love and he's like, it's not love?
0: Huh. Well, but then, okay, but... If if she's the kind of person who is at that point in her life where, yeah, she's going to be embarrassed about that. I think the fact that she doesn't get embarrassed about that tells us a lot about her and about what she is, how she is dictating the terms. Okay, yeah. Which is kind of what Tim was getting at.
1: So she's not how she was in the courtship with Rex.
0: Right, right. And I think, he, and you know, I hope, you know. I'm guessing they both learned something about how they should be in a relationship. Okay, now, so then we that would
1: mean that they're both being more active and previously have been very passive.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about at all is really like, and I don't think that this that chapter for it, we could talk a decent bit about like sh- just the should they, should they not portion of this chapter, like the morality portion of it. Right. And I think we need to let that lie for listeners who are waiting for us to talk about that. I think that needs to let, be let let we need to let that sit and marinate for a bit until we get to future chapters where Mm -hmm. you get more into the repercussions and that, that actually becomes part of the book. Um, so we're not going to talk about that today, but we do needs to go here in a second. Um, and we do need to talk about this King Lear thing. So let's conclude with this, that King Lear thing. Angelina, you said that's why we get these references to King Lear. Can you, on, on two forty eight? Julia and Celia and Charles are sitting in, uh, their, their cabin, uh, or no, they're sitting at table together. And Julia says, like King Lear. Um, and then he says, only each of us is all three of them. And then Celia says, what can you mean? And then he says, Lent, Lear, Kent, Fool. And then she says, huh. Don't try to. This is like that agonizing conversation from previously. Don't try and explain. And then he says, I doubt if I could. And then that just ends there. And there's another reference to it. But, Angelina, can you kind of explain that Lear reference there and what you think it might mean and what those well, three parts are?
1: I might let Tim take that. I, what I'd like to talk about is the storm, which is a motif in, in, in King Lear. And so, just as, as quickly and concisely as I can, say that it, with Shakespeare's Elizabethan cosmology, everything is connected, everything is very ordered. And so if there is disorder in a person, that is going to be reflected in, in the play with disorder in nature. And so over and over, anytime there's a storm in Shakespeare, that reflects the internal storm and chaos and disorder of the characters. So King Lear is disordered. As a father, he's disordered, right? He doesn't have his house mm-hmm. and orders, daughters and everything. As a king, he's disordered, and so the land is disordered. So you have that whole theme of the storm pervading the, the whole way through. That's in lots and lots of Shakespeare plays, Macbeth, and on and on and on. Um, so that, that's what I was referencing, the idea that the backdrop of this is the storm. But it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor for the storm inside Julia and Charles. And you see the different ways that people respond to it, right? So Charles's wife is hidden away. She's just going to medicate and ride this out and then have a beauty appointment afterwards. And Charles and Julie are just, they're going to go right out into the storm.
3: Yeah. Yeah. an occasion yeah.
1: for them to become close and get to know each other. And the storm is crazy. It's knocking people around. It's breaking bones. It's, it's Shakespearean. Well, and, and
0: ultimately, literally, literally, the storm brings them together.
1: Yes. Like yes. it
0: slams them. It literally it slams them into each other.
1: That's right. But that's and what it, metaphorically is happening. This force, you know, the universe, their emotions, their longing, their feelings, it's slamming them right into each other.
2: What I, what's so interesting about the reference to Lear for me is these three characters, mm-hmm. Lear, Kent, who's kind of his soldier, servant, advisor, and the fool. They all get thrown out in the middle of this storm upon the blasted heath. And it's the moment of Lear's greatest rage against his circumstances. And he says, there are these wonderful, famous lines, he's screaming at the sky, blow winds, crack your cheeks, you cataracts and hurricanes spout. And it's, it's always kind of framed as, it's a protest against God's ordering of things because Lear cannot accept that he is no longer the king, and he is enraged at God and at nature for not like, basically allowing him to keep his position. And so I wonder if that's, if we're going to see something like that in Charles. Charles does, is not enraged at God the way that Lear is. But I wonder if this is Waugh signaling to us that this is the kind of cleansing moment for Charles. This storm is the cleansing moment because after the storm Uh in Lear, Lear makes peace that he is kind of an ant in the cosmic order of things. And we see him kind of returning to his senses. He returns his affection for Cordelia. And I wonder if Waugh's like, Conveying the same thing through the well, storm. Well, it's very significant
1: C. that the storm ends, right? The chapter doesn't end with them in the storm. The storm ends. The sun comes out.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the clouds part, and
1: that usually means order has been restored. And this happens after the consummation of Julia and Charles's relationship. Yeah. So that's that's just that's very interesting. Yeah. And I don't know yet what to make of it. We have to see what happens in other chapters. But whatever whatever was pushing them together has resolved, in terms of the metaphor, because right. the storm the storm has subsided and the sun comes out.
0: Right. It, it seems as if the universe of the novel is preparing us to accept to to judge their, you know, their deliance as a positive thing. Like that's what it seems like the book is preparing uh-huh. us. Uh huh. Yes. Yes. To, to yes. feel. And this is that's why I didn't want to talk about whether or not like I don't want to talk about the morality of it I think I mean I think we would all agree that you know adultery is a problem um so i don't I want to talk about that because it the book is going to talk about it for us, and we're gonna have right. to we're gonna have to look yeah. at it from the book's perspective right,
3: right so, absolutely
0: um so for those of you who are like, why are they not judging charles and and uh Julia I mean. let's let's let the book judge for us and and we'll talk about that and um, and, and we'll see how how things actually turn out.
1: Right, Um, I mean, this is a conversion story so you can, you know, feel pretty confident. I don't remember how it ends but I feel pretty confident Wa is going to take this up.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, And, most likely, it's going to be taken up not by Wa himself or Charles himself but by, well, maybe Charles but by characters within the book. It's not going to be Wa telling us they were right or wrong. It's going to be, you know, there's going to be consequences yeah there's gonna be consequences there's going to be internal struggle there's going to be spiritual crises all this kind of stuff that's going to lead lead to a lead to a judgment of their behavior and of their relationship
1: but i I think i I think it's worth saying this and i might get some flack for this but i think that law has set it up that we are supposed to look at julia's marriage and charles's marriage as essentially being dead julia's Mm -hmm. for sure is dead and and charles doesn't have much of a marriage here either i mean doesn't even want to go see his kids which may or may not even be his kids
0: and um one thing that i think is worth pointing about about both their marriages is the lack of tradition the lack of traditions that were tied to the actual marriages themselves like the ceremonies Uh, like her ceremony doesn't have any of the 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 church stuff right
1: yes very interesting
0: it like distances itself from the um the sacramental nature of marriage right in the very the very way they get married like wah I'm not like saying people who don't get married in churches. It's a problem. But wa metaphorically, poetically, yes, is distancing right. this is itself. This in
1: with this idea, right, about loss of tradition and what happens.
0: And, and we don't know a lot about his marriage to Celia, Charles' marriage to Celia. But it certainly is, you know, she asks him. Like, there's all these different things that are counter yes. to the traditions. Um, and, of course, we know a lot about him. And so, therefore, probably there was a little bit. There, there probably was not a high emphasis on the sacramental nature of their marriage, you know. Oh. No,
1: and, and then, uh, again, the Celia Rex thing is that she messes up the Bourne he likes in an, in an effort to be utilitarian and helpful to his career, but you well, can paint and there. And his thought was, I'm going to miss the smell. It's not going to yeah. smell right anymore.
0: And it's in an effort to apologize to him in a sense, too. It's like she's trying yes. to make peace, and then she just ruins. She almost ruins it more.
1: Right, but it totally reminded me of Rex saying, yeah, they're going to turn tear down Bride's Head, but we'll get a penthouse apartment. Yeah, yeah. In the same spot. It'll be, it'll be, it'll awesome. be fine. Yeah. So yeah, they are definitely cut from from the same cloth, and Mm -hmm. and honestly, this is. I mean, I'm I'm a medievalist. You know, everybody knows I'm reading everything metaphorical all the time, but I, I just feel like there's such a danger when you don't read books metaphorically, when you don't say what is what universe has the author created what are the rules of this universe yeah what is he trying to say because these are not sermons a novel is not a sermon and if you're looking for that you're you're not going to find it and you're going to be all confused and mad at authors You you shouldn't be i mean this is a christian author trying to tell us a christian story and we have to accept the rules he sets for it while yeah. we read the book that's not to say that mm-hmm. afterwards we can't say he was wrong but while we're in the book we can't be fighting with him about the rules of his universe you have to let exactly. them create the universe they want to create
3: yeah
0: right exactly um okay well tim's gotta go tim what do you have to do i mean come oh, on oh my goodness you gonna go read espn <laughs> or like something i don't know like yeah. go, go play a video game i uh, wish
3: <laughs>
1: classic <Yeah>. tim <laughs> uh,
0: so when are you flying
1: into Austin? Maybe I should ask that off the air.
0: Never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can have like a whole pe- bunch of people just showing up at the airport like
1: We will not yeah, make dinner right. plans here on the air. <laughs> Never <laughs> mind. <laughs> well, guys,
2: I'm taking an overnight flight from the west coast whew. to Austin. I leave it like oh, I think I leave San Francisco around ten thirty, and I think I get into Austin I don't know. Sometime.
3: Wow.
0: Hmm. Yeah Well that sounds delightful.
3: Yeah, doesn't
1: it? tell so, so the fans that the three of us are going to meet at the Taco Bell on the corner.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Like David would drop dead before he'd set foot in a Taco Bell. That's Me? a joke.
0: Oh no, I eat Taco Bell, man. <laughs> I, I'm a food. I'm a food snob, but I also have a bit of a um, a bit of a love of fast food. So
1: wow, this I did not know. I only know David, the food snob.
0: Oh, I mean, when we travel and go to conferences, I'm definitely going to be doing a lot of you know pre conference research, but you know. In between conferences, cool. I eat way too much fast food. People, people but,
1: need to know that you're better than a restaurant app. I just asked David where to go. and like, you give me the rundown and people's specialties and where the chef trained. And... <laughs> now that well, i said that, everyone on the at the city. conference is going to come up to you and say, where should I go to dinner? And you know what so I'm going to do? Bell, I'm, I'm going to pull up an
0: everywhere. app. <laughs> <laughs> um, just pull up a like, food and wine or Bon Appetit magazine or something like that. Well... Angelina, and Tim, thanks so much for another great episode. Tim, I know you got to go, so uh, you know head off whenever you need to. But of course, uh, thanks to Scholé Academy from Classical Academic Press for sponsoring Close Reads this summer. Um, really, really great to be partnering with them. And uh, check out Tim's classes at scholeacademy.com. You can just click that picture of him there on the front page, and you should be taken to where you need to get to get more information on that.
2: We'd love to have your kids in the class. It will be. <clears throat> They'll be, they'll be a lot of fun. They will learn by accident. It will be so much fun. <laughs> by
0: well, there's going to be another episode of Closeries before you see us in uh, in uh, in Austin. In fact, there might be one that'll be perfect for your travel days next week. They'll that'll go up Monday or Tuesday of next week. Um, but we do hope that for those of you who are traveling, your travel is a little bit more peaceful and a little less stormy than what we read about today for the show I Um, definitely
1: did not want to book a cruise after reading this chapter (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: Um, but yeah thanks so much for listening if you would head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever leave us a review of whatever sort you prefer, starred, comment whatever we we really appreciate that Um, and uh, as always join the conversation over on the Facebook group and leave your comments, leave your criticisms, we read almost all of them and comment on some of them (laughs) um (laughs) But yeah, the conversations over there has been awesome. So thanks for participating. And uh, I guess that's it for Tim McIntosh and for Angelina Stanford and for all of the martyrs here at Circe. <laughs> uh, I'm David <laughs> the Curran. Distinguished the martyr. distinguished martyrs of art uh, here at Cersei. I'm David Curran saying farewell and close reads. Thanks for listening.